The Fanny Mechanic Show with Dr. Tash, where we dive in, go deep and open up about women's health. Hello and welcome everyone to this week's episode of The Fanny Mechanic Show. I am your host, Dr. Natasha Andriatis, aka Dr. Tash. This week, we dive into the topic of endometriosis, pelvic pain and nutrition. We go deep with dietitian Stephanie Velakis. Stephanie opens up about her personal experience of endometriosis, the dietary strategies she used to manage her symptoms, and how she manages women with endometriosis and pelvic pain through diet. Stephanie is an accredited practicing dietitian and nutritionist, also known as the dietologist. She runs a women's health and fertility-focused nutrition practice in Newtown, Sydney, and online. Stephanie is passionate about early life nutrition, which means healthier women and men before conception to improve fertility and enhance outcomes from fertility throughout pregnancy and beyond, as we know this impacts the disease risk of children. Stephanie is part of a national network of dietitians who focus on early life nutrition called Nutrition Plus. She also teaches the next generation of dietitians at the University of Sydney. She hosts her own podcast, Fertility Friendly Food, where she delivers snack-sized episodes on all things fertility and women's health nutrition and launched her new signature program for preconception nutrition for couples to improve their nutrition in the three-month period leading up to the pregnancy. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, Stephanie Velakis. How are we today? Good, thank you. How are you? Crazy in the time of corona. Mm, I know, the coronials. (laughs) (laughs) Now, today we're talking about endometriosis and nutrition. And I thought I wanted to ask you first, though, before we dive into that, what your experience of endometriosis is from a personal perspective, if you could explain that to our listeners. Yeah, so I was diagnosed with endometriosis quite recently, late uh, 2019. Um, I suspected that I had it for quite a long time, um, being on the pill. Uh, I experienced quite a lot of breakthrough bleeding on various different pills uh, throughout the years. And a few years ago, I was first diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome after a colonoscopy. And that's when I really noticed the pain starting to escalate. Nowhere near my period, just uh, pain and I decided mid last year to come off the pill and decide to really see once and for all what's going on with my period. And it definitely got worse in terms of both pain and um, heaviness of bleeding. So I ended up getting investigated for endometriosis with a laparoscopy just before Christmas last year, and they found stage two endo. So that's probably the, the abridged version of that story. So was it a few years into the lead up of that diagnosis? Yeah, yeah. And during that Quite time where you were seeing doctors and health professionals, was anyone ever discussing diet or nutrition with you? No. Uh, I once, um, but it wasn't in a very um, – because I was a student dietitian at the time, it was always felt a little bit condescending. Um <laughs> At the time when I had some of my worst pain, when I thought maybe my appendix was rupturing or something like that, I got set for an abdominal x-ray, which showed um, quite marked constipation. So I was given laxatives and told to eat a high-fiber diet and drink enough water, which I thought was um, 
yeah, I was like, I was already doing that and uh, opened my bowels every day, so I don't really understand how I'm constipated. So that was the extent of dietary advice I was kind of given by a GP. And then I was also recommended to do the low FODMAP diet by my gastroenterologist, which I was able to do myself, um, but because it's my job. So I was grateful that I had that skill set. But besides that, um, endo wasn't really mentioned besides um, I brought it up a couple of times. Uh, but diet was, was, wasn't a big part of my picture uh, from the medical standpoint. And why was a low FODMAP diet recommended to you? So I was first diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome after a colonoscopy. And so a lot of my symptoms um, were put down to an ulcer that I had in my, my bowel, quite low down in my bowel, a spot called the terminal ileum. And I couldn't do anything about that ulcer, unfortunately. So I just thought, oh, okay, that's what the pain is. Um, but the rest of my symptoms of bloating and gas and erratic bowel motions were put down to irritable bowel syndrome. And so Monash University have researched the low FODMAP diet and it's shown to be quite effective for 50 to 80% of people with irritable bowel syndrome, which affects about 15% of people, but twice as many women as men. So there seems to be a female dominated uh, condition. And so that's when the low FODMAP diet was recommended to at least trial to see if that could help with some of my symptoms of bloating and gas and erratic bowels and definitely did help at the time. How long were you able to do that diet for? Because the main thing that I see in women who've tried or, or on it is that adherence is an issue. They, they can't stick to it for too long. Yeah, I think that's by far the biggest problem. Um, I, I, these days now with clients, I try and do it a lot more targeted where I can. So instead of doing the full protocol, if I don't have to, but I suspect if I can draw out some relationships from a really good food and symptom diary, I can say, hey, you know, this week just try no garlic and see how you go. Or um, it seems to be that you have the most symptoms after you eat cauliflower for dinner. Uh, you seem to be bloated in the morning. Try swapping that for broccoli. And so I try and do it that way now because I've done it myself. I know that complying with it isn't always easy. Um, and I also have the mindset, like, if you're doing it perfectly, I'm, I'm worried about you because I expect you to, to mess up either intentionally or unintentionally at some point. Um, so the, to, what you're meant to do if you're doing it strictly is you're meant to go low FODMAP for a period of two to six weeks. Generally, four weeks is a good uh, indicator of whether you're responding well. And then the challenge phase really has a varied amount of time. I've seen clients do it in, you know, six to eight weeks, and I've seen clients take three to six months to get through all the challenges, depending on their symptoms. Um, there's, you know, if they notice that their, their bowel symptoms are funny around certain times of the month, around their period, they might avoid that week. Um, so it can drag on, and I think that is a big problem because it is a long period of dietary compromise. So... I try and really encourage women to, to if they're going to try it, to, to do it, but to get through it quickly and swiftly and not to delay it too long, uh, as well as to address other factors that may be impacting their bowels, like stress or caffeine or alcohol or medications that they're taking or it's their hormones around their period or it might be something else, it might be endometriosis. So I think 
looking at it as a whole picture as, as well as just a low FODMAP diet. Uh, it, it is a piece of the puzzle that's not the whole piece. And yes, it certainly can drag on, but it's not meant to. You're meant to go to a phase, the final phase of personalization where you eat to your tolerance or your threshold limits for certain FODMAP groups uh, so you can live relatively symptom free. With the FODMAP diet, if there is one food that you see is the most problematic, what mm. what is that? Do you, do you see that? Is there one food that really makes you go, oh, that, that's the one you should definitely keep away from? No. You know what? Honestly, it is so unique and individual. Like for me, I could not eat cauliflower. And this was in the age of cauliflower rice being like <laughs> peak popularity. And I could not escape cauliflower whenever I went out. But it would absolutely make me so symptomatic. So I knew I couldn't eat that. But for other people, it's not that. It's garlic and onion. For other people, it's wheat. For other people, it's lactose. So um, I'd say lactose, like the, the amount of lactose intolerance I see is pretty high. So if I was to pick one, it's probably lactose. Um, but they are they are technically idiosyncratic, which just means every person has a unique profile. Interestingly, though, once I had my endosurgery, my IBS intolerances have really improved quite dramatically. My tolerance for things like cauliflower, whilst it's not ideal, it's definitely a lot better than what it was. So just goes to show how much of a role that endo did play on my bowel function as well. So did the diagnosis of endometriosis change your approach to your diet in a big way? I don't think it has. For me personally, I think I've been able to liberalise a lot, which uh, for some is probably not the reality, uh, for a lot of my clients at least. Um, I think I now that I've been through the process of surgery and the diagnosis, uh, for those who are heading into laparoscopy, I'm doing a lot more education about post-op constipation because uh, <laughs> it's definitely real with all the medications and the bowel preps before. So mm. I think now I'm just giving a lot more advice around, you know, acute management of, of an uncomfortable bowels. And I think my clients really appreciate that because afterwards they're like, you're right, that is really uncomfortable. And I really appreciate that you gave me all the tools that I needed to, to deal with that. So I think that's probably the biggest thing that has changed. But besides that, I've always used the evidence and science to guide my recommendations, um, despite my personal experiences. And at the end of the day, each woman's lived experience of endo is so different and the impact on their lives is so diverse. So for me, I had that one ex like extreme bout of pain that was acute. But besides that, I lived a normal life. I didn't need to take Panadol or Nurofen on my period. Um, I didn't really have period pain. I got random twinges of pain. I got little random things here and there, which have all resolved post-op. Um, but, yeah, I I was, you know, I felt like a bit of a fraud, actually, being diagnosed with endometriosis because I just thought, well, I don't have all these horrendous symptoms that so many women that I see experience or, you know, the severity of the symptoms weren't quite the same. So, I think it really depends. I try and get away with as liberal as a diet as possible for my clients so they can live a flexible life, especially when it comes to food and social settings. Um, but for me, I, I mean, I have thought about experimenting a little bit more with my own diet. I've, I've done the low FODMAP diet and like I said, my tolerance has improved. 
Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I'm eating the same. I don't have any really, you know, many symptoms. And I think that's really the goal, you know, don't don't fix what's not broke. So, yeah, I think for me it hasn't changed how I practice besides some more advice around the acute management of surgery. And, yeah, I just really let the woman guide me and use the evidence to to try out different things for them. You mentioned that you had stage two endometriosis, is that correct? Correct. And what does that mean? Can you explain that to our listeners? Where was your endometriosis? So my endo was mostly behind my bowel and at the back of my vaginal canal. Um, I had a tiny spot in my uterus, but otherwise my ovaries and my tubes and everything were pretty much clear. Um, so in terms of the stages, even I, I'm, I really struggle with the stages of endometriosis because I, I find it hard to find people who all agree on the staging. Um, but my understanding is like the the more progressed you are, the more um, sites and the more larger patches or endometriomas are also kind of these cyst-like structures that can also exist. The more likely it is that things might be adhering to other organs or your um, abdominal wall and that's more kind of progressing into stage three and stage four endometriosis. So it is a progressive condition as, as far as I know and some people might pause and stop but I'm grateful I uh, was able to tune into my body and listen to it and advocate for myself to find out at stage two. Um, but I know that's not the story for for a lot of women. Um, but yeah, I just had kind of lesions. Um, my surgeon told me it looked like bubble wrap. So yeah, it didn't look like bubble wrap when I looked at the photo. Bubble wrap. <laughs> that's kind of that's a cute way. That's a cute way to describe endometriosis. <laughs> I was like, it's black bubble wrap. Why did nobody tell me that? <laughs> yeah, well, that's why I asked because when you said stage two, I, I, I still find there is confusion out there in regards to what does exactly that mean. So I always ask patients, where was it? Did your surgeon tell you exactly mm. where it was? And I think that's what p- women need to be asking their surgeons. Where is it? Can you show me photos? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Most, most definitely. With women you see who haven't had laparoscopic confirmation of endometriosis. And for our listeners, the gold standard for diagnosing endometriosis is to do keyhole surgery, that is the laparoscopy. So you see women who haven't had that laparoscopy but have really bad period pain. What do you recommend to them in terms of their diet? Because I refer these women to yeah. all the time. So yeah. tell, tell us more. Yeah. And some of them are really, really hesitant despite your advice that, you know, they should consider a laparoscopy. They're probably pretty hesitant to go down that path because um, they feel like it's quite an invasive surgery. Um, they feel like they might not fit the whole endo picture or for whatever reason, they just don't want to do it. And currently um, in so the age in- of corona, uh, we can't operate on mm. these women. We've been told we can't no. operate on them now. Uh, so their diagnosis may be delayed again another six to eight months a year. Who knows? So uh, I think this is even more relevant now in the age of coronavirus. You know, what else can we do to help these women? And, and that's where you come in. So, sorry, keep going. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So in many ways, I do approach it quite similarly. And depending on what your impression is as well, I, I use that a lot to guide 
So, you know, if you think, oh, suspected endo, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to treat it like an endo um, and do all the dietary strategies um, that I will use for endo. However, I tend to be a little bit less uh, like less likely to go down the more restrictive dietary patterns like gluten-free diet or uh, low FODMAP diet, depending on the client. Some clients are really keen to just give it a go anyway and see what happens. Um, unless there's bowel symptoms for low FODMAP, I'll probably never go down that path. But if they have bowel symptoms, it is an option. Um, but gluten-free diet and things like that, I try to leave until we've got a confirmed diagnosis. But other things that I do focus on is omega-3 fatty acids, both dietary and supplementary, upregulating those anti-inflammatory prostaglandins to help keep those smooth muscle contractions um, at bay on the, on the uterus and also the bowels. Uh, and I also focus quite a lot on antioxidants in the diet, herbs and spices, fruit, veggies, extra virgin olive oil, nuts and seeds, lots of plant foods, lots of fibre, and doing some education around how to also manage the effects of, especially for women who have heavy menstrual bleeding, which a lot of women have heavy menstrual bleeding but don't have endo as well. And so that's another crossover area. And so also managing the effects of huge blood losses as well, iron and B12, um, namely. But, yeah, it can definitely leave you feeling really drained. And I think replacement is really important if they're if – there's need there from blood tests. Omega-3s, where can we get those in our diet? Yeah, so these are our oily fish. So salmon, mackerel, sardines, anchovies, trout, not so much tuna. Different brands of tin tuna vary. Uh, fresh tuna is not a bad source, but uh, tin tuna isn't as good as it. If you substituted tin tuna for tin salmon or tin sardines, you'd probably be better off from an omega-3 standpoint. Um, if you're vegetarian or you don't eat fish, um, people often ask, you know, can't I just have walnuts and flax seeds and chia seeds and everything will be okay? Unfortunately, our body's ability to convert these types of plant-based omega-3s called ALA into the marine long-chain forms, which are the most absorbable and most bioactive, the EPA and DHA, is very, very poor. Our body is really bad at converting these. It takes a lot of work and you need so much of the ALA to actually get sufficient quantity of the EPA and DHA that it's not really recommended that you try and achieve all your omega-3s just from those sources. Those sources have benefits too, but not the kind that we're, that is probably going to give us a clinical or functional difference that you're looking for when it comes to period pain. Mm, that's really interesting. Hence the need to see people like you who know all this stuff. <laughs> now tell me, what are your thoughts on supplements? For yeah. say, so say omega-3, think- I, I, I can't get them into my diet. You know, I, I don't like fish, don't eat yeah. fish. What are your thoughts yeah. on that? Yeah, um, I think probably when I first like became a dietitian, I was like, you can get everything from food. Uh, I was probably a little bit naive in that regard. I think supplements in the space of women's health and fertility are pretty much just part and parcel of what I do now. It, if it's nutritional in nature, I'm happy to have an open discussion with my clients. I talk about the pros and cons. Um, and then let them make the decision. You know, some people want to try and be a bit more experimental in this space and others are like, I don't really want to have to take anything unless I absolutely have to. 
And so, and some people are like, I'd rather take a supplement than a prescription medication. Uh, or, you know, everyone's, uh, I guess, boundaries with supplements is really different. It's, it's really interesting to work in the space. Um, but I just give my clients, you know, this is what I would, you could consider if you wanted to consider more than this. This is, you know, here's some more information. Here's where to look at, um, which I'm grateful I, for years now I've been running a blog and I have a lot of information about different supplements and the pros and cons and the safety and all that stuff. So my clients can do some reading and they can come back and be like, oh, that looks really interesting. Of course, there's cases where it is absolutely necessary to correct a nutritional gap or a deficiency. And so this is when I guess I'm a bit more firm with my recommendations. So like I said, women with heavy periods namely have deficiencies in iron and B12 in particular, they're generally non-negotiable things that you're going to have to replace. And generally women are pretty open to that because A, they see that the blood result is poor and B, they feel rubbish. So they they want to try and fix that. But in terms of not having a true nutrient deficiency on paper and looking for nutritional gaps in the diet and, and showing like, hey, you know, you're really only eating fish once a month. That's really not going to cut it when it comes to omega-3s. You know, have you thought about replacing that? And omega-3s are a really common supplement. Most people are quite accepting of that. But then, you know, we can get a little bit more, um, you know, diverse and experimental. We can talk about turmeric or curcumin and we can talk about um, N-acetylcysteine and we can talk about so many types of different supplements that can potentially make a difference when it comes to endometriosis and the combination of the diet and the supplements in the right kind of mixture for people alongside conventional medical therapies as well seems to, it's just finding that sweet spot for each woman and that's sometimes a process and just like any women's health condition that I work with, you know, some people respond really well to some things and some don't. Um, the other really popular one in the endo space is probably probiotics, especially with funky bowel symptoms. So they're some of the big ones that I do have conversations to women about. And I'm very lucky because I, I work with women who are, you know, all, all my clients are super intelligent women they often have done their own research and they're coming to me and they're saying, Steph, what do you think? You know, what what can we do here? Do you think this, you know, we could give this a try? You know, I just don't know where to get it or what dosage and I just want some help around this. And, you know, like I I get so excited when people come to me like that. So I'm like, yeah, awesome. Like I don't have to, I don't have to like talk it all through it. I'm happy to, but um, it, it just shows that they're so involved in their own care as well which is really nice to see yeah and it's those types of women that uh, we health professionals learn from you know totally. they'll, they'll come in with something and you're oh i've never heard of this before and then they send you down this path where you go in to pubmed start looking at the literature and you think oh there is something there for that n-acetylcysteine is is one classic example for me the nac uh, so it's, it's, um, yeah, I'm very grateful for, for women who come in with a lot of, um, you know, previous knowledge that they're happy to share. Mm. Um, speaking of healthcare professionals, there was a, a recent article published, um, and the article is experiences of health after dietary changes in endometriosis, a qualitative interview study, 2020. I thought I, I'd read out the results of this. 
Uh, participants experienced an increase in well-being and a decrease in symptoms following their dietary and lifestyle changes. They also felt that the dietary changes led to increased energy levels and a deeper understanding of how they could affect their health by listening to their body's reactions. The participants understood that they could influence their symptoms through lifestyle changes. Support from family and friends was important in implementing and sustaining the dietary changes. However, and this is the big however, the participants stressed the lack of support from healthcare professionals. Uh, Steph, can you talk more on that? The lack of support. I could talk on that. I think this comes down to more my professional experience rather than my personal. I guess I'm in a unique situation where I am a nutrition professional. I can modify my diet with ease. I have the skill set to analyze research and make my own decisions about my own health. But I totally appreciate that's not what you know, the situation that everybody is in. So my conversations with most healthcare professionals that work with endometriosis particularly in the medical space, it tends to be, well, you can do something with diet for endo. That, that's not right. Like, it, it's this disbelief, um, which I think just goes to show that uh, I think this research is really important because I think it's representative of the fact that there is a huge, huge interest in any kind of lifestyle management to this condition that is essentially incurable um, and only can be managed, then of course we should take a lifestyle approach and look at chronic conditions. I've had women show up to my office so frustrated that their um, GP isn't writing a chronic disease management plan to come and see me because endometriosis doesn't quote-unquote qualify as a chronic condition, even though it is and it, it has been officially considered one for quite some time now. So there is a lot of misunderstanding in this space and a lot of people don't see the connection between diet and endometriosis, but it's definitely there. It's just really hard to study because, of, like I said, the, the women that have experiences with endo and with diet is so heterogeneous. And so I think this paper is a really big advocacy tool for, for people like me to, to talk to doctors and talk to medical professionals and be like, hey, look, You know, even if you don't want to look at all the epidemiological and cohort and correlational data, cool. But this is what your patients want. Your patients want somewhere to go to talk about it with a professional. Your patients want to explore these things. And now being on the other side and being being diagnosed and being inside all the forums, there are so many women literally every day being like, is there a diet that can help this? You know, my friend did this or this, or who can I go and see? And unfortunately, people are getting pointed in all sorts of directions. Um, and so many of my clients as well just go, oh, man, I really wish I knew this sooner. I wish I saw you earlier. I wish I, I did this as soon as I was diagnosed. And the need, the demand is there. And so I think you know, this paper shows that. I think what else this paper shows as well, I, I remember reading it as soon as it was published because I was like, ooh, this is really new and interesting uh, and it probably is going to show that, you know, women are listening to their bodies and they do, you know, they do say, I have, when I eat this food, I feel this way. This food doesn't sit right with me. They, they are in tune with their bodies. And so... 
whilst we don't really understand the mechanism, the, the, the theme that came out of this paper, I thought, was a lot of women are trying a gluten-free diet, which we know there is some research for in the Italian cohort. They showed that women who ate gluten-free for a period of 12 months 75% reported an improvement in symptoms and overall quality of life. However, it's not because gluten is inherently inflammatory, as some people think. We don't yet understand the mechanism. It could be a FODMAP thing because wheat is a fructan. Um, it could be something else. We don't really know. But I think the message that I would like to speak on from this paper as well is Going solo on a gluten-free diet may seem really easy because of all the products that are out there, but in the long term, it can pose a risk to your health. So in the long term, we know that it's an overall poorer dietary quality. We compromise key nutrients like folate, iodine, fiber, and zinc. These are all critical nutrients for our overall health, our bowel health, and also for fertility, which many of my endo clients are either trying to conceive or would like to one day. And so doing a gluten-free diet really, really well is important. And we know this from seeing studying celiacs who follow a very strict gluten-free diet in the long term. And we are starting to see the incidence of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease just absolutely rising in this group. So, and, and that's not just like an old people thing. Like I'm seeing young people with fatty livers. So it's don't think you're immune. Like it's just like osteoporosis. You know, you think, oh, that's just, that's a problem for 80 year olds. It's not. Um, it, it's a problem that you can, you can have at a young age. So I think working with the dietitian is really key and having the whole multidisciplinary team you know, approaching endometriosis, the, the medical community, the allied health community, all working together to actually provide solutions for these women who are in pain, uh, who, who want better management tools, and to work together and really optimise their outcomes, optimise their fertility. So you don't want it to go wrong. Uh, there's some awful consequences if they are experimenting on their own. And so I think it's really important that they work with the professionals and they get that support if they show interest in that. You know, I think you've you've hit the nail on the head there. Uh, pretty much it should be, all be about multidisciplinary care. So not only just seeing a gynecologist to remove your endo, give you the diagnosis, but exactly seeing a dietitian who can guide you better on diet. Uh, yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that because as doctors, we don't, we don't get great education when it comes to diet. Most people think that we do, but we get very little, uh, which is why it's very mm. important that we work with people like you. Thank you, Steph. Is there, anything, is there anything else you wanted to talk about in regards to endo before I ask some getting to know you questions? Um, no, I think, you know, my, probably my key message is trust your gut. Uh, if you feel like something isn't right, definitely continue to pursue it and advocate for yourself. Um, I feel like my my role as a dietitian is not just to tell you what to eat and what not to eat, but also to be on your team and listen to you and um, believe you and, you know, write a letter to your doctor and say, hey, you know, something's not right here. I think, you know, this needs further investigation and I'm, I definitely feel more confident than ever in, in doing that and able to help my clients a lot better in that respect and 
I think they really appreciate that. So, you know, dietitians are, yes, obviously we talk about food, but it's not just here's a meal plan, be on your way. It's a lot more than that. So don't be afraid, we're not scary people. (laughs) Well, one thing I appreciate about you is that you do write very comprehensive letters back. So I know I what kind of discussion you've had with that patient, what you've recommended, and so that is so useful. So for all the dietitians out there who are, are wanting to know what could make a good dietitian, I think that would be my first, this is what you should do, and that is communicate with the doctor that has referred the patient to you and communicate with them in a, a written format, ideally like a letter. Um, yes. So getting to know you, Steph, which mm. people – have been your biggest inspirations in your life? Mm. I think, you know, on a personal level, I think just my closest family members, like especially my my grandma is a big inspiration to me. I think she's just one of those people that um, just makes the best out of any situation. And I think, you know, especially in times like this with this whole coronavirus thing, I feel like, that is such a good attitude to have and I think that's really inspiring to me on like a personal development kind of level. But in terms of professional, um, I think Melanie McGrath, who's a Melbourne-based dietitian who also works in the fertility, women's health and pregnancy space, um, she is the leader of Nutrition Plus, which is the group of dietitians that I'm a part of, which is a network of early life nutrition dietitians across Australia and New Zealand. And I think it was really her workshop that I went to a few years ago that actually really inspired me to take the plunge and really go into this space a lot more. And also that's when I reached out to you, Tash. So (laughs) (laughs) I think it all was a good um, little chain of events. But yeah, I think that's probably some of my biggest personal and professional inspiration. I'm so glad you reached out to me. (laughs) I am too. (laughs) Favourite books you would like to share with us? Hmm, I think my two favourite work-related books at the moment, like diet or women's health related, is Pain and Prejudice by Gabrielle Jackson, which you inspired me to read um, and I was inspired to read after my endodiagnosis. And also Eat Yourself Healthy by Dr. Megan Rossi. She's an Aussie dietitian who lives in the UK and she's also known as the Gut Health Doctor. She has a great book that is kind of half a recipe book, but also half like a textbook, but a fun kind of textbook. And it is all evidence-based gut health strategies to help with anything from constipation, diarrhea, bloating, IBS, food intolerances, the lot. She covers the lot. She talks about yoga. She talks about sleep. She talks about bowel massage. Honestly, it is such a toolkit for my clients who have struggles with their bowel health, I loan it out and I just say, you know, this, you know, we've talked about some stuff today, but I think this would be really a good thing to review and see what things kind of resonate with you that we can work on together for our next appointment. Um, In terms of books that I read for fun, um, that generally happens over the Christmas holidays. The last book I finished, was Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine. Mm-hmm. I kind of like the light-hearted, girly, like not too serious kind of books. Um, I used to really, really like kind of medieval historical kind of um, 
novels, but uh, after about, you know, they're like 900 pages or whatever, but <laughs> the Ken Follett series, I remember loving those books. But unfortunately, I feel like by the time I finish reading all my papers and re- keeping up to date with any work-related books, the personal reading pile kind of falls to the bottom, unfortunately. So, um, but I do, I do really love to read. It's one of my, it used to be one of my favourite pastimes is now that I've got more time at home, I'm sure I'll be picking up a few more books. <laughs> the uh, Eat Yourself Healthy book, is that a recent publication? It is, it is. It was late last year, I believe. Yeah, it's okay. a great book. I'll have to look into that one. And the Pain and Prejudice book, uh, um, the Dr. Tash book club that we run once a mm. month in Newtown, A Better Read Than Dead, uh, we're reading that book in the next few months. I can't remember which month. I'll put a link in the show notes, but I was hoping that Gabrielle Jackson could come to that. But of course, oh. coronavirus, huh? Let's see. Strikes again. Zoom, yeah. Zoom book club. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's all well, Zoom. That's what we're doing. So God yeah. bless technology. And the Elef- Eleanor Elephants, yeah, someone gave me that book and I still haven't read it. So you've just uh, put that to the top of my list again. Um, <laughs> songs that make you happy, Steph. Uh, I love any song that makes me dance. I used to dance as a kid, and so anything that gets me out my chair and wanting to move, it just puts a smile on my face. So I think this is the classic one that always gets me up out of my chair is Rock This Party by Bob Sinclair. (laughs) I love Bob Sinclair. Slow clap. Oh, that's straight away. I'm off my chair. I'm ready to have a little dance break. (laughs) (laughs) I love him. Uh, your dream collaboration? Oh, you know what? I think since being diagnosed with, with endo and learning more and reading the pain and prejudice and learning more about like pain and that aspect of it, I think um, I'd really love to chat with um, Dr. Jason Chow, who's a gynecologist and also a pain specialist. I feel like having those two skill sets in this space is, is necessary and also really unique. So, I'd love to, like, I don't know, get him on a podcast or something like that. Mm. Maybe maybe you could achieve that, Tash. I yeah. don't know. But um, it oh. would be awesome to get his insights. James Chow. Jason Chow, yeah. Jason Chow. Okay, all right. Yeah, definitely look into that. And I'm sure he'd, he wouldn't mind you knocking on his door either. Yeah, yeah. He's a busy guy. I've, I've knocked. It's just it's hard, to, it's hard to get in. <laughs> Maybe not so much now. Yeah, maybe not. So yeah, no lockdown, lockdown. And my last question to you: top tips for being the best dietitian you can be? Mm-hmm. I think keep a really open mind. Keep keep learning, and trust your client, even if it doesn't make any scientific sense. It doesn't make their experience invalid, and I think that's probably my biggest learning in being a dietitian and the biggest learning that I pass on to, you know, students that I teach and dietitians that I mentor uh, is, you know, be really open. Yes, always keep learning from the science, but, you know, the art of what we do is making the, not always me superimposing the science on top of this person and saying fit this box, but rather you, you doing the work and pulling out those best bits and making it fit that person. Like, I think that is the art of what we do and communicating it 
in a way that they can understand uh, and feel motivated by so that they walk out the door feeling really good uh, and excited and happy and not down. (laughs) It's always my goal. And I think validating people's experiences is really the key part of, of that. Beautifully said. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Steph. We will chat soon. Thanks so much for having me, Tash. I hope you enjoyed this episode, ladies, with Stephanie. Please share it with others if you think it will help them. Check out Stephanie on her website, thedietologist.com.au. I've popped more of her details in the show notes for you. Please also subscribe to the Fanny Mechanic channel. And if you haven't already, hop over and give the show a fantastic rating. It's much appreciated. Shoot me a message on Instagram, Dr. Tash Fanny Mechanic, and join the Fanny Mechanic podcast group on Facebook. Let me know of any topics you'd like to hear, cool people like an interview, or books to read. Until next time, stay fantabulous.